Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. As many of you will be aware, on Wednesday, Rugby League Cares, which is the game's charitable arm, announced that the National Rugby League Museum will be created at the George Hotel in Huddersfield, the place where the sport was founded in 1895. I was privileged to be the chair of the independent panel that made that decision after two rounds of very high-quality presentations by three interested parties. There's still a long way to go before the museum opens, however. Detailed plans need to be drawn up, funding needs to be found and partners engaged. But if all goes to plan, a state-of-the-art rugby league museum should be opening at the George in around two to two and a half years' time. So what I wanted to do on this episode of Rugby Reloaded is to answer questions that listeners have sent in about the museum and also discuss the experiences of sports museums more generally. So naturally, my guest this week, yet again is Dr Kevin Moe, the founder and former chief executive of England's National Football Museum, who has been a consultant at various points in the planning for the Rugby League Museum and whose experience in creating the world's leading football museum is invaluable to any sports museum. So welcome back to the show, Kevin. Thank you, Tony. I suppose the uh, we'll start with just an update. So, as I said, it was announced on Wednesday that the museum would be opening. It will take some time. There have been reports that it will be open for the Rugby League World Cup in 2021, but that is, that's not going to be the case. I think one of the things we've learned throughout this entire process, which actually goes back around about 20 years when me and Kevin first met, is that it takes a long time, and particularly when we want to do something that truly is state-of-the-art and take the best from existing museums, it's going to take some time to put into place. So to answer one of the first questions, uh, which was, will the museum be open in time for the Rugby League World Cup at the end of next year? The answer is no. But on the other hand, there will be a lot of activities taking place around the George Hotel and in Huddersfield as part of the build-up and the World Cup itself in 2021. So stay tuned for some announcements there. I guess the other thing to say is what type of museum we're looking at. And we are trying to build on the experience of the National Football Museum. Uh, also other museums like Scottish Football Museum. It's also a great museum. The the museum at Twickenham and all the other museums, not just in, in Britain, but also around the world. One of the things we do want to do is to make it a whole of game museum. So it's not just about the professional game. It's also about the amateur and community game. It's about the men's game and the women's game. It's also inclusive, not just of players, but also fans, officials, community club volunteers. It will be a museum that is about the whole story of rugby league and its role within the the north of England and within the game internationally as well. So we do want to see lots of input from fans and supporters. We do want to make this an experience not just for hardcore fans but for people who may not even be fans of rugby league who want a great day out somewhere to take the kids somewhere where they can learn something about not just sport but also the social history of the uh, of the game itself so i guess we'll start with the questions and i think it was paul who's a north sydney supporter asked the question about the would the museum be open in town for the rugby league world cup next year which it won't be sadly but it is a long process, isn't it, Kevin? Because how long did it take from finding agreement for the National Football Museum to be founded to it actually opening in Preston? Yes, it shouldn't have taken nearly three years. 
um, to open in Preston. There was a, a one-year delay over a legal disagreement between FIFA and the co-owners of the FIFA collection, which delayed things in a Swiss law court by 12 months. So we could have done without that, because that was the basis of the museum, the purchase of the FIFA collection. But setting that aside, to line up the, the money, the building and the collection, uh and then to design and develop the museum, first impression, it was about a two-year process. And the same again in, in Manchester, from the point where we'd got them, and people say that's a long time, but from the point where we'd got the money for Manchester and that we'd already got the collection and there was the building, we had an existing building, the Urbis building in Manchester, but it needed refurbishing. It needed to change the building uh, for the museum, not too much because we wanted to spend the money on the displays and the visitor facilities, not the building. Um, we did that in about 18 months. And people will again will go, oh, that seems a long time. But major galleries at some of the places like the British Museum, the V&A, have taken four years. Um, you can do it quicker than that. 18 months to two years is sensible to do it well because it's a lot more complex than uh, writing text, having a glass case, putting some objects in. You know, you can do that very quickly, but it looks amateurish. Um, you've got to do this professionally and, and well. There's the lighting. There's the interactive elements, um, which take a long time. You've got to get this researched and based on the academic research that you, particularly Tony, have done and others. You want this to be objective and accurate. You've got to work with designers. Actually, it's, it's quite interesting. So you write a book on rugby league that's just you. You're, you're the author. You create this book. Um, a museum is like a film. There are hundred At the end of the day, with the National Folk Museum, there were probably well over 100 people involved. Some of the interactives had five or six people um, working on them, including shooting film for them. So it, it's, it, think of it more like a film. And bringing that all together. And hence, that's why, you know, 18 months to two years is more realistic. And do it brilliantly. Do it well. Because the thing I'd say is somebody, one of the questions, forgive me, said, well, I hope it's going to be half as good as the National Football Museum. Thank you for that. But it should be twice as good as the National Football Museum. It may not be as big. I don't know how much space you've got. But what you've described all of that, the, the vision you gave, Tony, is exactly right. That's the vision we had for the National Football Museum. But to encompass all of that, that's a huge amount to put in a, in a display, uh, so many facets, and to do that really well it, it is very difficult. And what I would say is make this world class. Learning from the, the National Football Museum opened in 2012. You can learn from that. This should be, when it opens, the best sports museum in the world because you should learn from all the best elsewhere. Not the biggest. I'm sure it won't be the biggest, but it will be the best. That's That's been our goal from the beginning. And as you say, we've got the opportunity to build on the shoulders of the other museums that have come before us, so we can learn from their experience and take best practice from that. So we're fairly confident about that. That brings me on to another question that Tim Prober asked, which was, will it be an exhibition hidden away in the same basement area as previously, or will it be larger and more spread out? And will it be a genuine attraction, an entertaining day out for kids, or a room full of trophies, jerseys, medals? Well, I can answer that to say, no, it won't be an exhibition hidden in the same basement area as previously. Our current initial thoughts are that it will be on the, the first and second floors, uh, sorry, the ground and the first floors, 
and we'll build from there. And the George, although you don't realise until you actually go in, is quite a substantial place. So there will be significant room to do things. Not as big as the football museum, uh, but even so, it'll be a substantially sized place. The exhibition that was in the basement of the George Hotel was the Mike Stevenson collection, uh, which was an exhibition there that lasted for seven or eight years uh, that the TV commentator, Mike Stevenson, brought his personal collection in. And the Rugby League acquired that six or seven years ago. And so that will also be part of the exhibition. But also we have a, a fantastic collection of material that the RFL has collected over the past, over the past century, to be honest, uh, that, is in, uh, that is housed just literally about a mile from the George Hotel at the University of Huddersfield's fantastic Heritage Key Archive Centre. Uh, so there's a great collection there, and we will be adding to that, and I'm sure that as we get nearer the time, we'll also be going out and looking at what other collections are out there. And as I said earlier, it will be an entertaining doubt for the kids. If we just restrict them the, the museum uh, to hardcore fans, or if we just do it about things that rugby league fans like me are interested in, it's not going to survive. So this will be a major visitor attraction for a whole range of non-rugby league related activities in terms of cafes, things to do for kids, uh, social centres and things like that, over and above what there is there for rugby league. And again, this is an interesting question, isn't it, Kevin, that when you're planning a museum, in a sense, it, it's, like, it's a bit like running a bookshop. If you only stock books that you're interested in, you're going to go out of business very quickly. You need to be able to see the museum through the eyes of people who are going to be casual visitors, are going to be people who aren't necessarily interested in football or rugby, but who want a good visitor experience either for their own days out or to take their kids out on a wet Sunday afternoon. Yes, absolutely. And that's how we got to, at one time, half a million visitors a year at the National Football Museum. Um, because we designed the museum, we, we assumed people knew nothing about the game, uh, we explain the offside rule. We explain four four two. We explain you know nothing. We don't expect you to be a football fan. We worked. We did a lot of visitor research with football fans, but with non fans, with families, with a, a diverse potential group of audiences. And so it was designed for the non football fan as well as the football fan. Absolutely, there's a lot of football fans. It's a big audience. But if you design a museum which just appeals to the hardcore football fan who's in uh, obsessed with the history of the the game, you you got you're not you're not also you're not opening you you're getting a small audience which you won't survive on, but also you're not bringing people to your sport. Um, you want to you want everyone to learn about rugby league. People who know nothing about it will come and will be engaged with it. And they might not start taking up the sport. Some might. Um, they might not become interested in it, but they will at least understand that rugby league is an important part of English cultural history. There's a couple of other points connected to that. That Our vision for the museum has always been to say that it's as much about the social history of the north of England as it will be about the history of rugby league, because... It's impossible to tell the history of rugby league without talking about the development of the north of England because that's where its roots are and where it emerged. But also, you can't really explain what makes the north of England itself so distinctive if you don't talk about rugby league. So there's a sense that this will be a, a museum about the north of England 
that tells the story of the North through the story of Rugby League, as much as it tells the story of Rugby League and the great test matches and the, the, great, uh, the great players and all the rest of it. And this is actually, quite, I think it's interesting what you raised just then, because it's uh, Chris Chatton asked the question about how can the museum be used to grow participation uh, and get people involved as fans, uh, players, volunteers, and so on and so forth, and attract new audiences. And I think to some extent, partially, our vision for the museum is that it will be a hub, in one sense, for the game. That if you go there and you're excited by what you see, you want to get involved in some way, then there'll be a, we'll have ways where you can find the club that's nearest to where you live or the activities that are near to where you live and find a way to get involved because obviously that's very easy to do now, just put in your postcode and you can find your nearest rugby league club. But also I think that, and again, the football museum did this really well. One of the things we want to do is actually have um, activities that get people practising the skills of the game. Because uh, at the football museum, there's the penalty shootout game. And we can do exactly the same thing for rugby league, using key rugby league skills so that people can experience what it's a bit of what it's like to play if they've never played before. Uh, and then get a sense of whether it's for them. And I think this has become an important part of most sports museums. Certainly the museum at Twickenham has a scrum machine and things like that. So, you know, so you can practice your, your, your scrummaging technique. And, and we'll do the same as well. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the Football Museum, that it has that very strong sense of it's not just about the history of the game. You can actually take part in various aspects of it as you go around, uh, as, you, as, you, as you make your journey around the museum. Yes, it, the museums aren't just about history. They're about the game as it is now and also the future of the game. The, the museum should have something about what are the plans for the internationalisation of the game, how, how it's spreading uh, across the country and around the world. Uh, so absolutely. And also in terms of the interactive elements, you can't have everything. It's impossible. We didn't have a big enough building. But you can do special events then that introduce people to different kinds of uh, of skills and activities. Uh, let me give you an example. We got the English uh, blind football men's team in and they did demonstrations and workshops with kids. And that was just absolutely brilliant, seeing the top blind players playing and then them coaching uh, kids who were sighted to understand the enormous skills in playing blind football. Quite incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Flea, who's been involved in rugby league in El Salvador and Nicaragua, asks a, a, a kind of George Hotel specific question, which is, is it true that we don't know the exact room of the famous meeting where the clubs uh, met to decide to break away and form the Northern Union? Well, we don't at the moment know exactly which room it is. There is a room downstairs on the left-hand side of where the um, reception was, which became known as the Founders Room because it was believed that's where the meeting was. But we don't know precisely because obviously the George Hotel, the layout of the hotel has changed significantly since 1895. But we do hope to be able to locate the records of the George Hotel. And depending on how well those records have been kept there may well be some record of what rooms were booked. Uh, but we'll certainly be looking into that. That'll be one of our priorities. Just to, to kind of dig out exactly the role that the George played in the uh, in the very early days of rugby. Because there was also uh, other meetings that were held at the George before the decisive one where the clubs decided to break away. My um, old and very good friend Trevor Gibbons has asked, really, I think the key question in all of this about any museum... After the initial burst of enthusiasm, how do we keep visitor numbers up? 
And how does the museum attract non-league-loving visitors? Again, Kevin, you can say much more about this because this is your day-to-day experience of leading this type of thing. Uh, but but our plans have always been to, in terms of keeping initial enthusiasm burning, to have a uh, a high turnover of exhibitions about not just different aspects of the game, but also how the game relates to different aspects of the north of England. So one of my pet projects that I'd always like to do is to try and organise an exhibition on the relationship between Rugby League and Coronation Street, uh, because Coronation Street is held in a fictional version of Salford. And at various times, Rugby League has played a role in the game. So I think there's things like that, that the exhibitions won't just be about you know great moments in the game and uh, it would be fantastic this year to have done an exhibition on the 1970 Great Britain Lions Ashes win, the last time they won the Ashes. Uh, so we'll do things like that, but also sort of more more broader exhibitions. Uh, another thing that's been suggested to me is um, the, the role that railways played in the development of rugby league and sport in the north of England, which is would be a perfect exhibition for the George, because uh, as those of you who've been there will know, it's less than 100 yards from the railway station, which uh, in many regards is why the meeting was held there. But yeah, this is, but this is a problem, isn't it, Kevin? How do you how do you keep the rotation of exhibitions regular? Because obviously they're very expensive to do as well, so that that's an issue. And also making sure that those exhibitions have the widest possible appeal, or at least some of them have that wide appeal that are going to bring bring in people who may not be interested in the nineteen seventy Ashes series. Yes, um, but you've done that with your overall philosophy of the the let's call them permanent exhibitions that you described already. You know, if you get it right with the, the, what the general offer, um, people are going to, people are going to come back. Um, you can't see it all in one visit. Um, you will return. Um, uh, you do it through special temporary exhibitions, of course, but you also do it through events. So, you know, there's a wide, but there's lectures, there's activities for kids. There's a learning program events spilling out into the street outside where you can practice skills that you can't possibly do inside because the building isn't big enough. Something on every day. You want to make it a place where a family will go, well, even though we went last week, the kids want to go again. They want to go again. It's not a one-off experience. So uh, there's lots of ways of doing that. I mean, actually, because you want to have a big marketing budget, there will be a big media coverage at the start. But actually... Uh, word of mouth is what spreads. So we, with the National Folk Museum, we did. We moved to Manchester. We got a much bigger audience because we're in the centre of Manchester. Great. But actually, we did better in year two and year three and year four. The audience kept growing um, because of that word of mouth factor. And in general, with new museums, that's actually the pattern. It's three or four years before your audience actually start, stops growing and starts to tail off. Um, and that's when you need to refresh more. But the, the temporary exhibitions are, are a way of doing that. And I, I see this as because of its location as something that will certainly for three or four years grow an audience. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I, th- I think there's lots of examples that we can use, lots of other experiences that we can use to make sure we've got the mix, um, the correct mix on that. Another question, which I thought was very interesting from the from the excellent Early Wigan Rugby website, was: uh, Will the museum be suitable to celebrate and include the role of French teams and highlight the story of French rugby? League? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely, definitely. We do want to emphasise the international links of rugby league. 
partly because in the case of France, there's obviously a, 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 a both a dreadful story of persecution during World War Two by the Vichy government, uh, but also a tremendous story of you know a, a triumph over adversity of how the, the the game's values translated to a French context and kept French rugby league alive, if you like. But also, I think that rugby league is very interesting, really, because although it's often portrayed as quite parochial sport, and you know it's supposedly just confined to the north of England, it's also very international. So, one of the most incredible facts I think about rugby league is that it's a national game of Papua New Guinea, and that is something we want to celebrate. There's also a lot that you know, tons and tons of stuff we can say about not only matches with Australia, the Ashes Test matches and the history of clashes between Great Britain and Australia, but also about how that reflects the changing relationship between Australia and Britain um, in its widest sense, in its political uh, and, and social sense as well, about you know the fact that in the 1960s, almost a million people went to Australia from Britain as £10 poms, and a significant number of those were rugby league players who helped revolutionise the way that rugby league was played in Britain. So the international aspect of the game will be a central feature of the museum. And I think that's that's also something that was true of the football museum as well, wasn't it? Yes, to some extent, but I don't think we, we did enough of that. I think we focused too much on England. Um, we didn't. We had a little hint about the internationalisation of the game, but, but, but with soccer, football, you've got to be very careful because... Actually, as you know, there's a lot of myth-making there. You know, this magically from England to 200 countries. Well, the English weren't the only people to spread the game around the world, and nor nor was it just the Scots, the Welsh and the Irish. Uh, Much of the spreading of the game is not by the Brits. Once it's out there, it's globalised by others, um, which is a huge story. Uh, but you've got a you've got just as an interesting story, a, an explanation. I mean, why why is it largely the north of England? Fascinating for non rugby league fans. Why is it certain postcodes in the north? But then why is it in Australia and Papua New Guinea and 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 very strong in certain other countries that we wouldn't guess as non rugby league fans or even as rugby league fans in a million years? Why there and not there? This is amazing and really interesting. You've done the research and so have others. Telling that story it is quite incredible. It is a global game. It is a global game. And why is it popular in some places? And not in others. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things that we can do in a museum. And it's, it's. I think it's one of the great things about sport is that it allows you to ask these questions about why things in a certain way. And almost immediately, it moves you away from just sport into much more broader areas of social and economic history and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, there's a great. I th- it's a great way to. Um, look at some myths, but also look at the you know the questions that lots of people have, not necessarily rugby league fans, about uh, why is it played in certain areas? Why can you, you know you go you go from uh, you can go from Wigan to Bolton? What is it, ten miles, fifteen miles, something like that? But you're in two completely different sporting worlds. So stuff like that, I think, would be really interesting to explore because it's an interesting aspect of the social history uh, again of the north of England. A couple of other questions just to to round off. Are we going to digitise the playing records and player regis- registration documents that are held in the Rugby League archives? And the answer to that is, yeah, we're g- that's on our list of things to do. We are very lucky, however, in that we have a fantastic relationship with the University of Huddersfield and its Heritage Key archives. And they will be uh, one of our key partners in developing the museum. And so we will be lucky, even before we've started doing anything with the museum, that... 
um, a 10-minute uh, walk from the George Hotel is a, a world-class archive facility where the Rugby League archives are kept at the moment. And uh, it means that we've got a, a lot of the work that most museums would do in keeping archives has already been done for us. So uh, it's a great facility and we're, um, we're going to start discussions with Heritage Key about how we can integrate and work together on on the records and all the other materials that they've got at Heritage Key. So we're, we're kind of a, uh, we're kind of a, ahead of the game slightly there. Uh, one of the problems with the f- maybe I'm exaggerating, but I'm calling it a problem. But the the, the football museum in, in Manchester has a kind of split level existence, doesn't it, in terms of its archives, which is still at the original museum space at Deepdale in Preston. Correct, and that that causes problems. So having everything gathered together in one space is 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 much more appropriate. So you, in part, Tony, have answered the question that came in when I looked on Twitter four seconds ago. Um, though this is not live, Sid has asked, and you partly answered this, but I think it's a, a question we should respond to. Huddersfield is a backwater; no one will visit. Why isn't the museum in a major city like Manchester? Well, that's a uh... That's an interesting question, and clearly, in an ideal world, then it's quite possible, but not entirely the case, that we would have preferred to have been in a in a major city. But the reality of the situation is that we look for partners, and the three partners, which uh, there's no secret, were uh, who uh, th- three organisations, local authorities, who made presentations for the museum were uh, Huddersfield, Wigan, and Salford. I would also argue, though, and I think this is an important point about when we, about the discussions, is that it's not necessary for a sports museum to be in a big city. For example, in America, the National Football Hall of Fame, which is a massive multi-million operation, is actually in Canton in Ohio, which to be honest, and no disrespect to the good people of Canton, Ohio, if you didn't have the uh, National Football Hall of Fame, nobody would have heard of it. But it's there because Canton was one of the first, had one of the first pro football teams in America. Uh, and similarly, the Baseball Hall of Fame is... Um, Cooperstown. It's, yeah, Cooperstown, which again, nobody would have heard of if it wasn't for the... Uh, uh, for the museum there. So it's a kind of, you know, there's in an ideal world, then things might be different. But on the other hand, Huddersfield has a lot of strengths because it is, it is the place where the game was formed and it's also a well-known place for where the game was formed. I'm sure if you went to 99% of football fans, they would not be able to tell you that the Football Association was founded at the Freemasons Tavern in London. Nor, if you went to rugby union fans, would they be able to tell you the name of the restaurant where the Rugby Football Union was founded in 1871. So Rugby League is actually in a very strong position because it's not only an icon of Rugby League, the George Hotel is a very well-known place in British sporting iconography as well. So we think we've made the right decision, both in terms of the historic importance and, you know, let's face it, one of the reasons why Huddersfield was chosen for that historic meeting was because of its ease of access via the train uh, network, but also because... And this deserves to be recognised as well. Kirkley's Council, which um, uh, which looks after Huddersfield as a town, has provided a fantastic package of support for the museum. And in a world where austerity is bitten deep and where there will be undoubtedly further cutbacks, that's a huge, huge plus uh, for the museum. So we're very pleased that it's going to be in Huddersfield. We think it's the best place 
that was available to us and we think it's going to be a great place going forward. I would support that fully because it's halfway across the M62, isn't it? Connecting the the main rugby league towns of the north. Um, you've got that. You've got the building where it is founded, uh, which is then very accessible by rail as well. Um, you've got the heritage key of the University of Huddersfield with the the archive, which and they've shown great commitment to that. Um, those are all huge positives. Um, and in in the end, as you say, it, 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 it well, it is where it should be in that sense, where where the game is founded. Uh, Cooperstown, the baseball hall of fame, is very very successful. It's in a tiny village. Let's call it a village. It's a town of no more than I think about ten thousand people in remote New York State. Three hundred thousand people go every year, um, and it turns out baseball was not created there it's built on a myth so you've got a true story uh, of a place of creation um so if you can succeed in a mythical place and cooperstown itself admits that now <laughs> baseball did not start here uh, i see that what you as you've laid it out a whole series of strengths and it's the commitment of kirkley's as well Kirkley's Council is, is absolutely brilliant. Um, I have no doubt this is going to be a lot of hard work, but when it after it opens, a tremendous success. Yeah, I, I, I'm similarly convinced that that's going to be the case. Uh, final question that I've got so far. We're rec- by the way, we're recording this on the Friday morning before the podcast goes out on Monday. So we, if you've got any other questions that you want to ask, please email them and I'll, or, or tweet them and I'll answer them that way. Uh, final question from Gary James uh, on the excellent International Football History Conference Twitter feed, which if you haven't been to, I would encourage you to go to if you're at all interested in the history of any football code. Uh, Gary says maybe the future footy conference could be staged at the George too, uh, which I would heartily endorse and say, yes, that's one of our plans, not just for the football conference, but also to be able to stage events on a very regular basis, whether they're international conferences or uh, local local get-togethers to discuss the history of the game or to support the game in any way whatsoever. The museum will not just be a museum of history. It will be an active community centre for the game, not just in the Huddersfield Kerclees area, but for the whole of the game. So it will be a resource there for whatever part of the game you belong to and for whatever activities you want to pursue. So uh, think of it as a um, uh, both a great museum, but also a fantastic centre for the game and its activities as a whole. Uh, which I think that's true also of the Football Museum, isn't it, Kevin? Yes, absolutely. Um, and you have that huge advantage of the commitment of the of the Rugby League uh, to, to this development, which automatically brings in all the clubs and the, and the game at a grassroots level. Yeah, uh, I think the, the, the package is, that, that is there for Huddersfield is, is a great success. Um, yes, and you can then make it a centre for, for example, academic conferences, to uh, the Rugby League hold, hosting meetings, but also to reminiscence groups where groups of elderly people come in and share memories uh, of the game. And also actually working with people who sadly got dementia uh, and you can use uh, Rugby League and the prompts of memories and Rugby League uh, to work with and help people with dementia. The, the, the social and community part of a museum 
aligns so closely with the social and community aspects of rugby league and rugby league cares. Exactly. And on that note, we're, we've run slightly over. I, I'm going to leave it there because I think that is the best note to leave it as well. It's about the social activity and the social history of the game and the community in which it's found itself, whether that's the north of England or wherever rugby league is played. So so thanks, Kevin. It's been great to have you on the show. And we'll probably do one of these again at some point once we've got more to announce on the uh, on the museum front as well. So watch this space, but also check out, check the uh, rugbyleaguecares.org website for, for regular updates. Uh, I hope listeners have enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. Just to remind you, uh, because I had to give him something to get him on the show, Kevin's latest book is called What You Think You Know About Football Is Wrong, and it's published by Bloomsbury, and I'd heartily recommend it. Uh, if you want to follow Kevin on Twitter, his handle is at drkevinmoo one and you can find his website at www.kevinmoo.org. Um, I, didn't ins- I didn't insist on that, by the way, but thank you, Tony. Uh, it, it's my pleasure. Uh, after all the work, yeah. After after all the work you've put in, it's the least we can do. If, as I mentioned, if uh, anyone has any further questions about museum, feel free to tweet them to me at at Collins Tony, and I'll also put some more information in the show notes for this episode uh, that appear on my website at www.rubbyreloaded.com, which, as I'm sure you're aware by now, features a full archive of all the Rugby Reloaded podcast episodes. So until next week. Thanks for listening.